The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're studying tonight a second uh, lesson on, on sin from Wayne Grudem's book uh, on systematic theology. And so we'll be looking at the doctrine of sin. And you know, the, the whole thing as we're studying systematic theology, the image I get is of a, a whole system of truth, a body of truth, uh, a city of truth that's getting erected in your minds uh, stone by stone. That doesn't happen overnight. And it's out of that worldview, out of that system of truth that you're going to be living your lives. Uh, we live according to the truths that we know. And uh, I find that, that we can't take it all in at once. So it just takes time. It takes repetition. It takes study of the Word. And so what we're about is a great work, even if you don't necessarily see how this lesson or that lesson would directly apply to your life. Now, sin is not one of those topics in systematic theology that's abstract. We wrestle with the, uh, we wrestle with the viper of sin every day, don't we? And anything that we can get uh, by means of wisdom, a good word from Scripture, a word of encouragement, uh, we need it. Uh, it's, it's like we're in the middle of a war. We are in the middle of a war, and we need all the ammunition and the strength that we can get to fight. Uh, we don't want to give sin quarter at all. So we're going to be studying tonight, but not. we'll, we'll be learning things, obviously. We'll be uh, taking in concepts, uh, but it's not meant to be abstract. What I want you to be doing as you're thinking about the things we're learning tonight is say, now how can I put this into into practice. Uh, we don't. We can't make a separate deal with sin. I love history, and uh, one of the things I learned, uh, I was reading a biography of Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill was seen the only politician in England who really knew who Hitler was before the war. Uh, everybody else was trying to appease him. They were trying to avoid the next great war. They didn't want to go through what they'd already been through, but it was already inevitable because of the nature of the man who was in charge of that country, in charge of Germany. Uh, and so Churchill was really a pariah for a long time. Nobody really wanted to hear it. They, they really were hoping to avoid the war, and so really almost anything that they could do to avoid it, uh, they, they would do. And all they were doing was weakening their own position as events just hurtled toward World War II. Eventually, Churchill became identified as the one guy who really understood Hitler for what he was. You don't make a deal with a guy like that. It's impossible. All he wants is to conquer the world, and he's going to do it one way or another, and, and Churchill knew that, and he knew you just cannot make a separate peace with him. You can't be like Neville Chamberlain coming back with a, with a piece of paper with Hitler's signature on it and saying, we have obtained peace in our time. There can be no peace with a guy like that. Well, that's a small picture, frankly. And you say, small? Well, I'm, I mean, it is a small picture of the real battle that's going on in the world, and that is the battle of God's people against sin. That is, that is one of these stories of uh, world history. You can't make a deal with sin. Uh, it's impossible. It means to destroy you. It means to, to take your very life. And so we learned this in John Owen's uh, study. We were studying mortification. Uh, it's, it's just not possible to begin a quarrel with a viper and not go on and finish it with the death of the viper because viper means your death. That's, that's what his intention is and you can't separate and go your own way. And so we must uh, be about the business every day of fighting this deadly enemy. Thanks be to God, we already have a prophecy that someday we will see sin dead at our feet. Uh, it says openly in, in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And all of that uh, struggle will be over forever. And how sweet will that be? How sweet will that be? But in the meantime, we, we struggle and we're at war. So uh, let's uh, look at the outline that we have here. This is again from Wayne Grudem's uh, incredible systematic theology. We're looking at chapter 24. We're in the middle of the section just to locate ourselves in the doctrine of man, anthropology. And if we're going to study anthropology, the, the study of man, we're going to have to study sin. Uh, that is one of the issues that we deal with. Now, we've already seen the creation of man. We've talked about gender. Man is male and female. Talked about the essential nature of man. And then that brings us into the fourth subsection, uh, and that is on sin. Last time that we studied, a couple weeks ago, we saw a definition of sin. I'll review this briefly. And we talked about, as best we could, the origin of sin. Uh, and we'll, we'll review that briefly. And we talked also about the doctrine of origin, uh, original or, or inherited sin. He calls it inherited sin. Most people call it original sin. 
Uh, tonight we're going to be looking, we'll review those three briefly and then talk about actual sins in our lives and very briefly at the end, the punishment of sin. So let's go back and review briefly and try to understand uh, a definition of sin. Uh, he defines, Grudem defines sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So he establishes a law. You can't have sin without a law. There needs to be a standard that's breached. Sin is transgression. It's a breaching of the law. Uh, he went through um, uh, and said there are other inadequate definitions of sin. One of them would be sin is selfishness. That's not adequate. We really wa- we want to get the standard of the Word of God, the law of God up there and then see sin in light of that law. Did Adam and Eve have a law that they needed to obey? What was the, what was the law that Adam and Eve had to, had to deal with? Ten Commandments? No, there's nothing in the Ten Commandments. What was their law? Do not eat from that. It was very simple. Do not eat from that tree. Very, very simple. And you think, you know, gee, we've got all these laws. We've got the whole Old Testament and all of the New Testament. Actually, Martin Luther said, if it weren't for you know salvation by grace, we'd be in worse shape because the standards are even higher in the New Testament. The commands are even more pervasive, going right into our hearts and into our intentions. And we're commanded to be kind and compassionate and all kinds of other things. So it just we have overwhelming laws to keep Adam and Eve, just one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the day you eat it, you will die. So sin is a breaking of God's law. And so 1 John 3, 4 gives us this definition. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. The law is summed up by Christ in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets uh, hang on these two commandments. If anyone ever tells you, by the way, as Christians, we uh, do not need to pay any attention to the law. They take a verse out of context, like saying we are not under law, but under grace. Bring them to these two great commandments and ask them, does a Christian need to obey these? Do we not need to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength anymore? Are we free from that? And how about loving our neighbors ourselves? Clearly, we are saved to the law. Not by the law, but we're brought back to the law and God works that law in us by the power of the Spirit in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, uh, Romans 8.4. So we are going to be following this law. And for me, these commands are not merely commands now, but they have become promises. Someday I will love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Someday I will love my neighbor as myself. Isn't that wonderful? So they are commands. We take them seriously. We do fail in many ways, but they are also for the Christian promises through grace so that's a marvelous thing now we talked last time about the origin of sin we basically said i don't know we don't know where evil originated from we don't know how it it popped up in a pure universe without god being the offer now remember we set up some barriers um first that god did not sin and god is not to be blamed for sin there's nothing evil in god god is light and in him there's no darkness at all. He can have nothing to do with sin. He never did, never has, never will. He can use it. He uses it incredibly well to achieve his own purposes, namely his glory. But he does not himself commit sin. He cannot do so. Secondly, God is absolutely sovereign, the ultimate ruler of his created universe, both spiritual and material, visible and invisible. There's not an equal situation like a yin and yang. We're not dealing there with a good force and the evil force. Uh, but we are dealing uh, rather... Uh, with a God who rules over all things. That runs us into problems, doesn't it? In that we know if God is sovereign that he can shut evil down anytime. He can pull the plug on the devil. We talked about that. Uh, He can sovereignly prevent you from doing evil, but he doesn't choose to do so for reasons that lead us into mystery. We end up with great tragedies and we uh, come to God and and we're not sure why, why he would allow those things to happen. But uh, we do not uh, remove what the Bible has taught us very plainly, namely that God rules over all things. And thirdly, God willed to permit evil to enter his universe in a way ultimately unknown to us and that God will someday judge all of it and cleanse his universe from all evil. So we look forward to that day. Those are the basic kind of tenets of the existence of evil. Others have theories. We can talk about it, etc. But ultimately, we're going to say, I don't know how evil could have cropped up given these uh, parameters and also uh, that God created a pure and good universe. We talked last time about the entrance of sin into the human race. Um, Adam's sin, uh, that uh, we'll talk about more in a second, but um, 
uh, original sin. And we talked about sin's essential nature being irrational. It's uh, insanity. <laughs> There's nothing else to say. It's just insanity. Why would you do it again? You know, ask yourself. See if you can a- answer it for yourself. Um, don't bother asking your children. They will not be able to give you an answer. All right. Uh, ask yourself, why do you do it? Um, it's irrational. Someday God will cure us of this insanity. Someday we will be cured. And frankly, I tend to look at regeneration as a curing and a healing. Uh, in other words, God restores and puts back the heart to the way it was meant to be. Namely, God directed. We were meant to love God. We were meant to esteem God and to worship him. Sin has messed all that up. He regenerates us. He recreates us to be uh, uh, what we were meant to be. So we'll talk uh, more about that in the future. Now, we talked briefly last time about the doctrine of inherited original sin. It is a very difficult doctrine for human beings to understand. It's hard for us to to know uh, how God counts this issue, uh, what we call federal headship, that we were represented by Adam at the tree that Adam was representing us, that we were in some, in some sense there in him at the tree and he sinned for us all. And when he sinned, we all sin. We obtain therefore guilt and we uh, obtain internal corruption. Now, these things are mysterious to us, but clearly taught in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, And then it keeps on going there. Did you ever notice that? Paul never finishes it. Just as, what are you waiting for? Whenever you see a just as, what are you waiting for? Just as, what? So also, right? Well, he never does finish it, but you get the gist. If you read all the verses, uh, 12 through 21, you understand what he's comparing. Just as sin entered the world through one man, so also righteousness and salvation enters through one man. And frankly, the gift of righteousness and salvation is so much greater than what happened to us in Adam. Christ just completely overwhelms what happened to us in Adam. Isn't that marvelous? And in the end, we get redeemed to a higher level than we had, uh, than Adam had in his innocence. Uh, a beautiful thing. So, uh, but it's a doctrine of original sin. Uh, we may not understand it, but we sure do see that it's working that way around the world, don't we? There's plenty of evidence that uh, every single baby comes into the world with a corrupt nature and will do wrong as soon as they understand what wrong there is to do. That's just what they do. So, original sin. All of that is review uh, from last time. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about the issue of actual sins in our lives. Notice what Grudem is doing. There's the two issues. There's what we call original or inherited sin from Adam. All right? But then there are our own sins. Someone once said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Or I, I look at it another way. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, actually, that's not literally true. I do many things apart from Christ. Uh, what are they? Well, we call them sins. All right, we sin apart from Christ. Jesus clearly there meaning, apart from me, you can do nothing worth doing. You can do nothing of eternal consequence. You can do nothing of benefit apart from me. But we certainly can sin apart from him because in him there is no sin, it says in 1 John. So, basic, uh, the beginning teaching is we're studying anthropology, the study of the human race, we're going to say that sin is an issue for every single human being. Every single person has actual sins. They commit actual sins. This is proven again and again by both statement and example in Scripture. Psalm 143, verse 2 says, Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. That's the doctrine of universality of sin. There is no one righteous living before you. First Kings 8:46. Solomon, as he's dedicating the temple, says, And there is no one who does not sin. Uh, very, very plainly, he says there, this universality of sin. Uh, frankly, the best treatment on this you're going to find anywhere in Scripture is in Paul in Romans from 118 up through 320. That whole section, Paul patiently and systematically shows that both Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. That's the theme of Romans 118 through 320. He is proving the thesis that both Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. 118 through the end of chapter 1, I think it's verse 32, he's talking about the pagan or the Gentile world and those exchanges. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than their creator. They made some other despicable exchanges as well. And so there's just a filthy, impure, wicked life that the pagans are living. But then in chapter 2, he goes through the Jews. He says, now you, you have the law. You're instructed by the law, but look how you live. Are you keeping the law? Are you obeying the law? 
Uh, and so basically he sums it all up and says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. That's the Gentiles. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That's the Jews. Nobody gets, nobody escapes. And then he sums the whole thing up very beautifully with a series of devastating quotes uh, from the Old Testament in chapter 3, uh, verse 9 and following. I've quoted some of it there on page 2. What then shall we conclude then? Are we, meaning Jews, are we Jews any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, So uh, the basic point that he's making there in Romans is that everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs Jesus. There's not a person on the face of the earth that doesn't need Christ. And frankly, if there were, then why did Jesus come? If righteousness could be gained by the law, then Christ died for nothing, Galatians 2.21 said. The fact that Jesus took on a human body and that he died an atoning sacrificial death is God's statement on our ability to save ourselves. We need a Savior. And praise God, we have one. The demons, they don't have a Savior. There's no salvation for them. But we have a wonderful Savior. We have Christ. So, I don't look at these verses in Romans 3 ultimately in a dreary sense. I don't look at it and get all depressed. I say, that's what God overcame in my life. That's what He's overcoming in every tribe and language and people and nation. He's going all over the world and He's conquering that, that wickedness and that sin. He is, he's a sin conqueror. Remember what, what the angel said to uh, Joseph. You will give him the name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus has come to be our Savior from sin. So, uh, sin is universal. It's, it's over all of us. All of us then commit actual sins. Even Christians still have sins in their own lives. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says this, If we claim to be without sin, uh, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And by the way, that is a common pattern from people who are trying to be very, very righteous to some degree apart from God's grace. The only way you can really do it is to start to deny, to deny sin to lower the standards to some degree. We'll get to that in a second, but this is what I call perfectionism. The only way you can pull it off is to lower the standards. Uh, And so they begin to deceive themselves and say they have no sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness or purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, We make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our life. Now notice the verb tenses both present in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And then verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned. So he covers both sides. Both sides. Effective confession is available only through faith in Christ and so it's available only to believers. We're we're dealing with believers here. 1 John is written to believers and so believers have to admit that they have sin in their lives. Now, let me take a minute and do a little aside here on perfectionism in 1 John. Have any of you ever read some verses in 1 John and said, wow, I'm in trouble? If that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm in deep, deep trouble. Well, let me give you an example. This is the KJV version of 1 John 3, 5 through 9. And the reason I had to go back to the KJV is that all the modern translations help out certain verses in 1 John from the stark statements that are made about righteousness. Because you read it and it's like, oh my goodness, there are no Christians. Or maybe there's just some like small enclave somewhere in the hills of some foreign country and we're supposed to just leave them alone and not, not make them impure because they're the only true Christians on the face of the earth. Because every other Christian I've ever dealt with struggles with sin, even after they've come to faith in Christ. So 1 John 3 can be very challenging. 1 John 3, 5 through 9, it says, And ye know that he was manifested, Christ was, to take away our sins, and in him is no sin whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Does that trouble you? (laughs) Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. I'll circle that one just to encourage yourself, you know, as you read the word of God. Okay. For his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
Now, you may not have walked in here with a trouble with 1 John 3, but it's my business now to give you some trouble with 1 John 3 and then alleviate the trouble. Uh, Verse 6, for example, various translations. uh, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. That's the NAS. NIV gives us this. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Notice how the NIV is trying to help us out of our predicament here. Um, No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Uh, So they're putting in this continuing language, etc. ESV does about the same. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. And then RSV does a similar thing. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. So that's verse 6. Verse 9 gives us this. No one who is born of God practices sin. And as sticks that in there, practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. First John 3, 9 in the NIV gives us, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go in sinning because he has been born of God. Anyway, you get the idea. As you look at verse 6 and 9, uh, read them carefully, look at your life and be honest, you end up with a problem, don't you? So you look at that and say, well, am I a Christian? I mean, if I sin, am I a Christian? Uh, could it be that God really intended to work perfection in us? And that's, that's the thing we work in. Almost every translation, page 4, seeks to interpret the language of John away from perfectionism to avoid contradiction with the earlier teaching in 1 John 1, 8-10. 1 John 1, 8-10 says, if we claim to be without sin, uh, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So those are comforting words because that encourages us to confess our sins and if so, he was faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So people read these things and they end up with what you call post-baptismal sin and you say, wow, I'm in trouble. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Then the devil can come along and tempt a struggling believer like he did me a long time ago and say, could it be that 1 John 1, 9 has nothing to do with the ongoing life of the Christian but just with conversion? And that as we come to Christ, if we claim we have no sin, that means we don't need a Savior, but we actually do need a Savior. Come to Christ, believe in Him, confess our sins, and then He purifies us from all unrighteousness. But if you sin after that, you're not a Christian. So I, 1 John 1, 9 didn't in the end help me. So I said, oh, I need some help. Well, God gave it to me once when I was doing Scripture memorization, and it was two verses earlier, and that's in 1 John 1, 7. 1 John 1, 7, I, I misprinted it there above it. It was 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, present tense, from all sin. Now, why is that encouraging? Well, it's possible then both to walk in the light and to need to be purified from sin. And I actually think it's not just possible. That's the Christian life here on earth. We are walking in the light. We love the light. We hate darkness. We do not love evil, but we hate it. We want to see it out. But we do struggle. We've got this body of sin, Paul calls it in Romans. We wrestle with it. We struggle with it. We fight. We sometimes win and sometimes we don't. But we are walking in the light because we're born again. We're children of God. And that light shines in the darkness. The darkness will never extinguish it. We're children of the light, not of the darkness. We live in Him. And we will live in Him forever. So we walk in the light as He is in the light. And yet, in a mysterious sort of way, we also need an ongoing purification from sin. And my feeling is this is the only thing that accords not only with my experience and with what I see of the Christians around me, but with the incredibly high standards that are laid on us as Christians. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do all of this and a hundred other commands all the time perfectly. That's why Luther said the gospel is horrible news if not for salvation by grace because it's just even tougher commands to obey. So my feeling is we all are falling short of Christ's perfect standard all the time and therefore we need to be in a a beautiful and an ongoing way constantly purified from sin. And frankly, this is exactly what I think Romans 5 is teaching us. When Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We are standing in grace. And what does grace do but cleanse us from all sin, right? So I, I said to Christy early in our relationship, we were talking about the shower of grace. You remember that, hun? And just standing in that, just soothing, cleansing shower of grace. You're living in it all the time. And as soon as your pores kind of emit something that needs cleansing, it's cleansed. It's the grace of Christ 
That's the way he can keep looking at you and loving you as a child of God because you're just cleansed by the grace of Christ. And you will be as long as you're in this world. And then you'll be transformed. You'll be made perfect in him and you won't need that kind of grace anymore. We want to minimize the kind of grace that cleanses and purifies. We do. Uh, Paul says, what then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? We don't want like even more shower than, than we've had before. But if, it's, if we need it, it's there. But we want to minimize that kind of grace, don't we? We don't want to have to have lots of cleansing, purifying grace. But if we need it, it's there. That's the commitment that Christ has to us. Isn't that good news? You had a question earlier. Go ahead. Choose your best, your, your favorite one. We'll get there in a minute. It's a later in the outline. I gave her a coupon, so we're going to use it. Yeah, it depends how you look at it. Of course, somebody can kick a habit, a bad habit, like smoking or drinking without Christ. Uh, people do that a lot. Um, you know, that just by willpower, they can clean themselves up morally. Jesus talks about that when he talks about um, an evil spirit going out of a man, and then he comes back and finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. You know, uh, the key word being unoccupied, swept clean and put in order is moral reformation. Unoccupied is they're not a Christian. They don't have the indwelling spirit. What does the demon do? He says, takes us seven other spirits in the final conditions. Last is worse than the first. So I guess what I would say is, yes, the moral test is very important. You just need to know what to look for. A Christian has a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness that they didn't have before, a yearning for the word of God, for the glory of God, for the presence of God. It's just, there's certain kinds of moral things that are happening in the Christian, and that's walking in the light. So that's a good question. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's his wrath. It's his passionate reaction to that which has destroyed his universe. Um, but he, it's not the only thing. He also looks on it with long suffering and patience, puts up with a lot. <laughs> he also looks on it and immediately thinks of the blood of Christ shed for it. That's what he does with us, right? He sees our sin. It's not like he doesn't know it. He's omniscient. But immediately, as an act of his will, he reflexively thinks of the blood that was shed for it. So there's a lot. Of, it's not a, I can't answer in a simple way, how does God look on sin? All right, let's keep going. First uh, John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I think that the balance in that one verse, 1 John 2, 1, is so important in the Christian life. Fight sin. Fight it hard. Don't ever give it any quarter. Don't ever say it's okay or I'll just put up with it. If God convicts you about its sin, he wants you to deal with it. I can assure you he has not convicted you about every sin there is in your life. I can assure you of that. Because, frankly, the standards are so high, he is only bringing to your attention that which he wants you to deal with. And therefore, you must deal with everything he's brought to your attention. And you will try and you will strive and you will fail. That's why the second half of the verse is important. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation, next verse says, the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that's the encouragement that we have as Christians. Now, next question about sin. Uh, if we are kind of slaves to sin naturally, apart from Christ, if the human race is sold into slavery and sin and bondage and all that, how can God hold us accountable and responsible? If we really have no, no choice in the matter, does our inability actually then limit our responsibility? Pelagius taught this, and some of the uh, modern, more free will schemes uh, would not want his name uh, connected to them, but they're similar. Uh, basically, um, every command of God is really a statement of what we are capable of doing. And I mean the human race, not just Christians. If God commands you to do something, you can do it. That's their way of thinking of the commands. 
Pelagius rejected the doctrine of original sin. He taught that the only sins God held to our account were those committed by an act of the will against a known command of God. That's sin. You know the command. You can do it. You choose not to do it. That's sin. He also taught we're able at any moment to do good. We have a free will at any moment. What that means is you don't really accumulate, it seems, any habits or character traits that make it increasingly difficult. Now, that's not been my experience, um, but at any rate, that's what Pelagius taught. Uh, Augustine wrote directly against him, and Pelagius was eventually condemned as a heretic. His doctrines were condemned by the uh, church at the time. Now, the Bible teaches that we are responsible even though we're portrayed as totally unable to do good. We are told that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. That means we're unable. And actually, when you see the pictures of Christ's miracles again and again, is it not the picture of human inability? Can't walk, can't see, can't, can't, can't. And Jesus comes and just shows his power to enable us to do that which we naturally could if it weren't for the pollution of disease and sin. So um, the fact that we are dead in our transgressions and sins just speaks to the fact that we cannot obey. Uh, this is a foundational point that Luther made in his debate, top of page 5, his debate on free will with Erasmus. Like Pelagius, Erasmus held that the commands of God were really a commentary from God on our true ability. Luther in his classic, The Bondage of the Will, refuted this notion. He said, just because God commanded us to do it doesn't mean we can do it. It's just a statement of his moral nature. It's a statement of his, of his character, not a statement of what we can do. All right? By the way, Grudem goes on to say, if this were true, then the devil who is totally enslaved to sin really isn't held responsible for much. He can't do anything but sin all the time. And so he wouldn't be held accountable. doesn't make any sense. Uh, Grudem on the true measure of our, our responsibility said this, the true measure of our responsibility and guilt is not our own ability to obey God, but rather the absolute perfection of God's moral law and his own holiness, which is reflected in the law. That's what we're accountable for. Whether we can do it or not, that's the standard. It's God and God alone. Uh, Matthew 5.48 says, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can, can you do that? Is that a commentary on our ability? <laughs> I don't think so. That is not a commentary on human ability right there. But that is a commentary on God's nature. It's a commentary on what we should have been and should be in the image of God. Now we come to this question of infants. Are infants guilty uh, before they commit actual sin? Now this is a corollary connection with the doctrine of original sin. We teach that every single infant is born in Adam, and so they have this original sin. Are they guilty in original sin before they commit what we call actual sins? Now, some would posit what we call an age of accountability. It's not mentioned anywhere in Scripture, but there are certain indicators. For example, this passage in Isaiah 7, uh, 14 through 16, which is famous for uh, a different reason, but just read it. Uh, It says, "...the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel." He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, that would be a kind of a good example of what people think of when they think of an age of accountability, an age at which you know enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. They they recognize that infants don't know anything about right and wrong. They have to learn certain commands. They have to learn certain things. And when they learn them, then they're able to do right and wrong. All right, so infants growing up, Uh, little by little, gain a standard of morality. Now, I believe, frankly, that infants, young toddlers, really young, they know right and wrong based on what their parents teach them without knowing, in my opinion. How can we know what's in the mind of an infant? No idea. But that they can know that mom and dad don't want them to do something without knowing that there's an eternal creator who's commanded them to obey their parents. So at what point is it sin against God? At what point do they know of an invisible creator God who's given them certain commands that they need to obey. That I don't know. Now, some reject this whole thing and say the Bible never says anything about age of accountability. It's dangerous to to imagine this. But uh, I don't think so. I think in Romans 7, there's another indicator. There in Romans 7, it says, What then shall we say is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Now, here's the key verse. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Now, what is he talking about there? I can tell you that this verse is a battleground for theologians. They go over it and over it and over it. But at least one interpretation is that Paul's speaking of himself, 
autobiographically, speaking of his own spiritual experience. And at some point he was fine until he understood the law about coveting. Now, tell me again what is coveting? And his teacher, his mom, maybe your dad would tell him, oh, okay. And then sin came in and took a beachhead there. And when the commandment came on the heels came a, an actual transgression of the law. It's just human nature. You know, you get, a, you get an envelope that says, do not open. All right. And something starts working inside you. You must know what's inside it. It's even tougher. It's got your name on it. Andy, colon, do not open this. Absolutely. It's like, oh my goodness, that, it's become even more enticing, even more interesting. Basically, there's this kind of evil nature inside of us that needs somewhere to go and it doesn't have anywhere to go until there's a command and then there's a bridge for that evil to express itself. Once we have a command, then the sin nature can express it. What is coveting? It's such and such. All right, and off it goes. So, you know, to me, that implies an age of accountability, although it may not actively teach it. Yeah, quickly. Doesn't that contradict uh, what Paul says about the Gentiles? The law is already in their hearts. They don't have the commands, but God's going to judge them because deep down they know what's going on. People who would defend the idea of an age of accountability say it's programmed in there, but they don't understand it until they get to a certain age. So there's a programming in there, and once it begins to speak, to communicate to them, then they are refuting, then they're sinning. So anyway, I, to me, as I'm struggling with understanding this idea of infants and age of accountability, there are no final verses that settle it. I think it's possible that it's it's true, but we don't want to go too far. Go ahead. Um, well, uh, in the case of infants, those that argue for an age of accountability say, yeah, they don't know God, therefore it cannot be, you know, that before the commandment comes, Romans 7, 9, they're alive in some sense. But once the commandment comes, now the commandment's going to come. God's going to bring the commandment. He is. He's going to bring the commandment. Everybody's going to get it, as you said, Sean, through the internal testimony or the through special revelation. We get the Bible. People will teach us the commandments. And when that comes, we die. It wouldn't then like a, you would say then those who die prior to the age um, are pardoned because of their ignorance. No, they're not pardoned because of their ignorance. We'll get there in a minute, but let me go to the end, end matter. Nobody, no human being is in heaven apart from the blood of Christ. I believe that with all my heart. And none of them, even infants, even if there are some infants dying so-called in, in, in innocence or in ignorance, etc., they still will be testifying to the faithfulness of Christ because original sin and original guilt is real. We were in Adam. Those infants sinned in Adam. Now, Paul even talks about them in Romans 5. He said, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. I believe he's talking about infants there in Romans 5. They didn't sin like Adam did by breaking a command, but they sinned in Adam. I think some interpreters say that's infants. They died. And the very fact that infants die shows because where does death come? The wages of sin is death, right? So they are in some sense under sin by dying. But uh, then we talk about eternal condemnation and all that kind of thing. And in my sense, uh, well, we're getting ahead of it. Let's do it in order. <laughs> I thought this order out. Let's stick with it. But anyway, I, uh, that's a very, very good question. Uh, Grudem was suspicious of this whole age of accountability thing. So he and I might have a little bit of a disagreement. Um, he said, there are passages like, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 58, 3, even from birth, the wicked go astray from the womb. They are wayward and speak lies. So he says, yeah, right there. All right. Now, for me, this is pretty significant. The pictures of Judgment Day all center on the same pattern. In other words, the soul who sins will die. You are judged according to what you have done as recorded in the book. It says it over and over again. It's not just once in there. It's in there many times. Romans 2.6, it says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Right? Uh, Proverbs 24.12, will he not repay each person according to what he has done? 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Revelation 20, 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, in them and each person was judged according to what he had done. This is kind of a repeated theme again and again. Do you see it? And again, Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Well, with this such a repeated theme, I'm thinking, okay, where does that leave infants? On what basis will infants be judged? 
if they cried too much for their bottle, um, if they were inconsiderate of their parents in the middle of their, of, of their night needs, is that it? You know, you are an especially bad baby. I, I, to me, I have a hard time imagining how you're going to be judged based on what you've done while in the body, good or bad. Are there good infants and bad infants? I guess there are. I mean, some that are a little easier, I guess, more mild-mannered. I just have a hard time imagining there being this kind of a judgment and this kind of assessment. Um, the problem we have with all of this question is that it's speculative. The Bible actually doesn't say much about it either way. Now, it's very emotional for parents who have infants who die. Very emotional. Uh, I can scarcely imagine a more emotional topic. They want to know, are their babies all right? You know, in the Middle Ages, there were all kinds of myths and other kind of interesting things taught even by the Roman Catholic Church, like the Limbus and Phantom, that they were going to be, if they weren't baptized, they were going to be kind of flitting around forever like disembodied souls, neither in heaven nor in hell, but in limbo, in the Limbus and Phantom. And that's where the infants went who were not baptized. For that very reason, my parents baptized my brother uh, in his uh, like sixth or seventh day because he had pneumonia. And they were afraid that he would be in, I don't know what they were thinking, but I know that the doctrine says that they would be, that he would be in limbo. And so they, uh, they hurried to baptize him. This is with the Catholic teaching. It's very, very important that the uh, infant be baptized. For me, I think this is all speculative. Now, Grudem says, now it's possible that they may in some mysterious sense and way be regenerated even from the womb. It's interesting uh, thoughts here, but I'll just read what he says. He talks about John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And in Luke 144, uh, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped leap for joy. Those of us in the Luther class found that this was exactly the kind of argumentation Luther used for infant baptism, saying they can have faith in some way. You know, even though faith comes by hearing the message, they can have faith and therefore we can baptize them. It's kind of interesting how he maintains both justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, and infant baptism. But he did on the basis of the fact that these infants might have faith somehow. To me, the whole thing seems a little speculative. Uh, there's other uh, biblical evidence. For example, Grudem uh, cites David's statement about his infant son who died. Some of you heard this one. 2 Samuel 12:23. But now that he is dead, why should I fast, said David? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. People read that scripture and say, well, David's a righteous man. He's going to heaven. He's convinced of that when he dies. And so basically he is testifying that he will go to his infant son who has now died, but he will not return to him. Okay, uh, that's fine. It may be comforting and encouraging. The problem I have with it is that the same kind of language is spoken by Samuel. Remember when Samuel was called up from the dead by Saul the night before Saul died? And so there he is, the witch at Endor. You remember that whole eerie encounter and there's Samuel and Samuel speaks to Saul. And remember what Samuel says to Saul, the Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So you say, what's the problem there? Maybe Saul and his sons are in heaven. Maybe they are. That would be wonderful. But Saul sure isn't looking good at the end of his life, is he? He's not really the picture of a, of a believer. The Spirit, Holy Spirit has left him. He's visiting a witch. He's, he's, just, he's just the picture of a, of a wicked kind of apostate man. If he ends up in heaven, praise the Lord. That's great. All I'm saying is that the language with me is not enough really to build a theology on, okay? I like Grudem's final statement, it's the best. Regarding the children of unbelievers who die at a very early age, Scripture is silent. We must simply leave the matter in the hands of God and trust Him to be both just and merciful. If they are saved, it will not be on the basis of any merit of their own and any innocence that we might presume that they have. If they are saved, uh, it will be on the basis of Christ's redeeming work and their regeneration like that of John the Baptist before he was born... Um, will be by God's mercy and grace. Salvation is always because of His mercy, not because of our merits. Scripture does not allow us to say more than that. That's the best we can do with the issue of what happens to infants who die in infancy or aborted babies. Uh, people are concerned about the spiritual state of aborted babies. For myself, I just feel inside my heart based on the pictures of Judgment Day, you're judged according to what's recorded in the book, that I think that they are in some mysterious sense redeemed through the blood of Christ. Um, I don't think there would be anybody in this room who would be rooting against that, although you'd want to be sure that the things that we say are rooted in Scripture, and I can't ultimately do that. All I can do is say this is what seems reasonable. The next question, which was brought up earlier, is are there degrees of sin? Are there some sins that are worse than others? Well, in one sense, legally, before God, all sins are the same. There's not a single uh, violation of God's law that cannot condemn you to hell. 
Uh, every sin is equally capable of condemning you to hell. As a matter of fact, Jesus touched on this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say that if you're angry with your brother, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. So just motions of anger in the heart can condemn you to hell. Now, some might think that that is an overly strict standard, but you have to realize that God's standard is absolute perfection. And if, he had, if there's any unrighteous motion of anger in the heart, it's a, a picture of, of unrighteousness. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, you said it first. Wasn't that anger without a cause? Because I know anger in itself yeah. is not sin. God is angry. Right. And there is. That's right. There is pure, righteous, holy anger. Jesus displayed it when he cleansed the temple. My question to us as sinners is, what percentage of the times that you are angry do you meet that uh, qualification? I, I have to be honest. I'm thinking not once in a hundred, maybe even once in a thousand. You know, righteous indignation. Usually it's connected to some inconvenience or pride on my part. You know, I'm kind of annoyed at something that's related to me. But Peter, you're right in saying um, not every anger is that way. But clearly there was an anger that Jesus meant when he was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. And that kind of anger can condemn you to hell. Bottom line is there is no sin greater or less able to condemn you to hell. It says in Galatians 3.10, all who rely on observing the law are, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Thus, even the smallest point of the law is enough to condemn us. For whoever keeps the whole law, James 2, 10 and 11, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. The issue is not what specific precept you broke. The issue is the character of the one who gave the command. That's the issue. It's got to do with the holiness of God. So at one sense, there's no difference one from another in terms of your standing before God apart from Christ. If you don't have Christ as a savior, any of these violations is enough to condemn you, any of them. Uh, however, we know that there is a difference between thinking angry thoughts and actually murdering another human being. We know that. We know there's a difference between having uh, a lustful thought and actually committing adultery. Jesus talked about the, these things. We know that there's a difference. One is seed and the other is the full, the full flower of it. There's a continuum between the two, but we know there's a difference. And the Bible itself says, in terms of effect on life, some sins certainly are worse than others. There are gradations of commands and gradations of sins taught in the Scripture. Jesus said, Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Can you imagine these guys out there with a microscope, like counting out mint leaves? How big are mint leaves, you know? One, two, three, nine for me, one for you, Lord, you know? And there they are giving a tenth of their spices. My goodness. Definitely don't want to give God more than a tenth, so you've got to be really careful in the counting. You know, you want to be very, very sure. The Lord knows what a tenth is, and you sure don't want to err on the wrong side. So there they are counting out their spices, he says, but you have neglected the more important or the weightier matters of the law. Therefore, Jesus has a gradation of laws, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So go ahead and give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Go ahead and do it. But the more important matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You've, you've neglected those. So clearly, there are some commands more important than others. All right, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate in John 19:11, "You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin." Jesus himself then putting sin on a graded scale. There's a greater sin, and then there's less sin. Uh, Ezekiel 8:6 uh, says, "You've seen detestable things; you'll see far more detestable things." A gradation of wickedness, and then this, First uh, John 5:16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother, <clears throat> excuse me, commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. Do you see a gradation of sin in there? There's a sin that leads to death and then there's a sin that does not lead to death. I believe on the basis of this one verse or two, two verses here, the Roman Catholic Church divides sin into two categories, venial and mortal. There's the venial sin, that's the small stuff. And then there's the mortal sin, that's the big stuff. And if you commit a mortal sin and die uh, without it having been confessed and dealt with through their sacramental system, you will definitely go to hell. No, no purgatory, whatever, that's the mortal sin. Then there's venial sins, etc. 
Now, we Protestants tend to reject that kind of division for the earlier point that we make that any sin is capable of condemning us to hell and all sin is serious. But we do practically uh, acknowledge the difference between the really big sins and those that are not so important. Um, Grudem uh, summarizes three reasons that it's helpful perhaps to make a distinction in sin. First, it helps us to know where to put more effort in our sanctification. All right, you know, you don't need to get better at tithing your mint leaves, okay? Don't put a lot more time in that. Work on justice, mercy, and faithfulness, okay? Work on those things. Secondly, it helps us to learn to overlook small faults that you may see in a brother or sister. Will you see them? Yes, you will. They'll see them in you too. And oh, how shrill does life get when we're pointing them out to one another, okay? It's not really a good way to have a family. It's not a good way to be a church, right? I don't really want to be in a church like that. I think sin is important. I think we need to deal with it. But I think rebuke and correction should be safe for things that are at a certain level. And we need to be able to distinguish what they are. Thirdly, we need to know what is worthy of church discipline and what is not, but something we should just pray about or at some seasonable time mention something to somebody about an issue in their life. You see what I'm saying? We need to be able to make a distinction there. There is ultimately a gradation of punishment as well. Jesus said, uh, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. More bearable. So that implies a gradation of punishment and sin. Okay? Now, what happens when a Christian sins? That's a grievous topic, but it's one that's, I think, applicable, sadly, to all of our lives. We want to know what happens to us when we sin. Well, first, our legal standing before God doesn't change at all. You need to meditate on this. This is what I learned early in my Christian life called the principle of position. Positionally before God, we are forever seen forgiven, completely forgiven, positionally. We are adopted children of God. We are seen in Christ. There's no fluctuation in justification. You're not more and then less justified. You are either justified or you're dead in your transgressions and sins. There's no other option. And so we are either perfectly forgiven through the blood of Christ positionally or we are not forgiven at all. And if we are in Christ, we are perfectly forgiven. All of our sins forgiven, past, present, and future at the moment of justifying faith What a sweet thing it is. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, Ephesians 1. So we are forgiven. There's so many verses I could have chosen here, but Romans 5.1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So our legal standing and our position doesn't change at all. Do you know how many Christians don't believe that? And it's really a sad thing. They sin, they struggle, and the devil starts to attack them on this very point. They've not been well instructed biblically. They don't understand this principle of position, and they think they need to earn their way back into God's favor. They need to think that God God has got to be put out with them for at least a week or five days at least on that sin. They've got a kind of a pay scale for sin, I guess, and God's going to be out with me for at least 36 hours on that one. Uh, And that's the way we think. And we we think that our position is affected. It isn't affected at all. He sees us in Christ. He sees us forgiven in Christ positionally. However, there are some effects of sin in our lives, aren't there? The Bible testifies to this. And these are things that we should take very seriously. Even though our position isn't uh, challenged at all, yet there are some issues. First of all, our sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God says in Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit grieves deeply when we sin. How would you feel if you sinned and then you know, saw the effect of your sin on someone you loved and they are weeping? I mean, they're just weeping. You've devastated them by what you did. Would that not hurt you as well? And if it didn't hurt you, wouldn't you be uh, worse than the block of a man or a woman to have no compassion on someone you love? Well, how much more than the Holy Spirit of God with whom we are sealed for redemption? How, how would it be for us to see his emotional reaction to our sin? We don't want to grieve him. Why would we want to grieve him? And by the way, he doesn't grieve alone. Uh, he does not grieve alone. If you have grieved the Holy Spirit, he will make you grieve. That's his job. Now, there's a time lag I've found between his grief and ours. He was grieving long before we were on that one, okay? 
And we're kind of la dee all we like sheep have gone astray and we're just doing our thing. And then at some point, conviction hits and we join him down there where he is, okay? Grieving over the issue. And then together, having confessed the sin, he is faithful and just, he'll forgive us, cleanse us, and get us back to a joyful state of walking. But for a while, we're kind of out of step with the Holy Spirit in terms of how he thinks about us, right? Performance-wise, not positionally, but performance-wise. So he does not grieve alone. It's one of his wonderful jobs to help us to grieve over our sin too. Therefore, it says in James chapter 4, grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Say, oh, what do I want that verse, verse for? That's a terrible verse. Well, no, it's very useful when you sinned. When you sinned, then you should do that. You should take the time to feel the, the sadness. So uh, the Holy Spirit grieved. Um, secondly, there is a possibility of discipline from the Lord. It says that he disciplines every son that he receives. And my question is to you, why in the world would you want to put yourself under that kind of thing? When you realize that sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from the will of God, when you realize that whether your car starts or not, when you realize that all your finances, when you realize your personal physical health and that of the ones you love, uh, when you realize that everything you care about in this life is in his hands, everything, everything you care about in this life, and he can do anything he wants with all of those things anytime he wants then I think we should fear him and not sin. I think if we care about those things, care about how well things are going in this world, care about our fruitfulness, care about our relationships, our physical health and all those things, we should not sin. Because if we do, we may be liable for discipline. Sometimes he does not bring the discipline. And if you discipline yourself, he may not have to. Okay? It says that in Corinthians. But at any rate, we may be liable for discipline. Thirdly, we may waste our lives. Sin is a great waster. And when you're in sin, you're not going to do the good works that God has ordained that you should walk in, right? You're going to waste time. You're going to miss opportunities to serve. And as a result, you'll be building with wood, hay, and straw rather than gold, silver, and costly stones. And at the end, when your work is tested and you'll see how much fluff there was there, you'll say, boy, I wish I'd done better. I wish I'd walked more faithfully with the Lord. And you'll have to give an account for it all. Keep that in mind because Jesus said there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be revealed. Faith, the eye of faith sees that. The eye of faith knows that there are secrets now, but not then. And so we have to remember that there's no concealed things on Judgment Day. We give an account for it all. So those are four good reasons for a Christian not to sin. I hope that helps you. Then there's the issue of the danger of unconverted evangelicals. You know, you can go to a good church here, good preaching. You can walk the aisle. You can sign the card. You can get baptized. You can do all of that and not be converted. And the question is, are you a stony ground here, somebody who's rejoiced in the word but not genuinely taken root in Christ? And if you go on and on and on in a long-standing pattern of sin and all that kind of thing, after a while, your assurance starts to go down. You begin to wonder, am I one of those unconverted evangelicals? It becomes very troubling. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So that's uh, something that we need to be concerned about. All right, let's stop there, uh, see if there's any other details we can clean up uh, next time. Any questions about some of the things that we have covered today? Yeah, go ahead. Is it wrong to interpret that because of Adam's sin, um, we're all, all are condemned? Therefore, it's one trespass for the condemnation for all, for all men. So, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification that results in life for all men. Romans 5.18. Your question is? The trespass leads to condemnation, not just the trespass leads to sin, but we're condemned for yeah. the sin of Adam. Is yeah. that wrong to interpret? No, I think we should see it that way. And then Jesus steps up under, under the curse for his people and takes it off them. He becomes a curse for us. So we were condemned to die like a death penalty. You know what I'm saying? And he comes and takes hell for us. He takes our sentence of condemnation on himself and there's none left for us. Um, usually people have problems on that verse with universalism. Just as everybody's condemned, so also everybody will be saved. And I don't believe in universalism. Another question? I was thinking with an application to infants um, mm-hmm. and they're not condemned for their own sin. In some sense, I, I discussed this with someone else, but they argued we're, we're not condemned for Adam's sin. We right. would only be condemned for our own I feel that to be true. I, I feel I don't think anybody's going to get sent to hell with just one sin on their record, namely Adam's. I think they get, people get sent to hell for actual sins that they committed, violating their conscience and violating the law of God, knowing what they did, but they did not trust in Christ for cleansing. That's my, my belief. But I can't make it as strongly as I would other doctrinal points because I lack scripture to support it. So the condemnation here perhaps would be condemnation to death, not condemnation to hell? Yeah, well, it could be, you know, full condemnation, but then Christ comes and takes it from us. In other words, that he takes our condemnation. We're under the sentence. 
just like we're presently under a physical death sentence, but we're not dead yet. So also we were under a worse sentence, namely of hell, but we weren't there yet. And Jesus came and took that sentence off onto himself. That's the way I would... You know, like when the judge reads the sentence, you're condemned. You may not be dead yet, but you're condemned. So I think it is a condemnation, but then he takes it for us. Praise God. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the study we've had tonight. And thank you for the uh, brothers and sisters you brought here tonight to study together with us. Father, help us to fight sin. Help us, Lord, never to give up on our understanding doctrinally of what we are in Christ, that we are, are free from condemnation, just as we were discussing a moment ago. We are your children. We are yours. And yet, Lord, help us to fight sin with everything that we have, Lord, that we would not live wicked lives, that we would not live ungodly lives, but rather that we would live alone for your glory, loving you and serving you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.